term sheet. And I think it's important to word uh, to understand kind of the general wording on term sheets, both on investment and M&A, is that you have a number of provisions that are non-binding, and then you have very specific binding provisions, usually the exclusivity, that's kind of, that's probably almost always the one that's called out and said, everything's non-binding except exclusivity, that you can't talk to anybody else about this transaction. You can't shop this transaction. And that's essentially the buyer making sure that their term sheet's not being used to go shop around that, uh, all over town to get a better deal. Uh, that's an important factor. And, and as far as the breakup fees, um, I think if you do a quick search and you look at the news right now, there are a lot of deals that went into discussions or post-term sheet uh, before the pandemic. And then uh, there are a lot of buyers that got cold feed, especially when we're talking about like retail, buying big retailers. Um, and a lot of people are trying to walk away from those transactions because all of a sudden, you know, I think Victoria's Secret is one of them. Um, that deal is all of a sudden worth a whole lot less or nothing. And the private equity buyers are trying to walk away from those transactions for obvious reasons. And uh, there's going to be an interesting fight about that. And then the breakup fees are, can be pretty substantial depending on the size of the transaction. Yeah, I was reading that uh, some of the studies that they've done in terms of M&A transactions over the past four or five years, breakup fees can be anywhere from about 5.5% of the total deal value. So that can be extensive depending on how much the total consideration is for the transactions. And for the seller, the, the breakup fee also is, is, not, is no panacea. It might cover your costs, but it definitely slows down your process and it's a huge opportunity cost. So if you had a, you know, two potential buyers that you're choosing from, and then uh, you chose one and the transaction didn't come through, it's very unlikely you're going to get the other one back to the table or you're going to take a huge haircut, you know, when they know that they're the only game in town. Great point. Uh, we've got a question from Rick Andrade on, on the Q&A function about how due diligence has changed uh, in the term sheet. And um, I think that's a, that's a fair point that if, uh, if there are specific issues that, that you spell those out, <clears throat> whether it's... Um, you know, that at a certain point, you want to be able to talk to a certain number of customers or a certain customer in particular um, or, or a channel partner. Um, I, I'm definitely seeing that people are getting uh, kind of specific about, you know, what diligence uh, requirements that they have. And I will note that in the pandemic, uh, one of the diligence uh, points that is uh, hard to, uh, to do is just to walk the land uh, and meet people face to face. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've seen one transaction where uh, the buyer spelled out that there would have to be a face-to-face -face meeting uh, at some point before signing as a condition uh, to their uh, proceeding with the deal. And, and uh, you know, that's really a sign of the times that we're now in a, in a point where transactions are happening uh, between parties that where the discussion commenced post-lockdown uh, post and where a face-to-face -face meeting has not uh, occurred. And, and that's um, kind of a stunning development uh, in, um, in the world. And I, I think we're going to start to see a lot more of those as, as, uh, as time goes on. Um, I, I would also note that for cross-border deals, those face-to-face -face meetings are especially difficult where there are uh, not only uh, intra-state uh, lockdowns, but there are border controls that stop travel. All right. Should we uh, jump to the next point? Make sure we don't fall behind. Yeah, please. Unintentional binding obligations. 
Yeah, on this one, I think we want, we want to make sure that people are, are are disclaiming any duty to negotiate in, in good faith. I think that's very important to make sure that uh, you both parties can get get out of a deal uh, if, if they want to. Um, and uh, so that's the point of that one. Um, Natasha, Brian, you want to talk about partial performance or, or, or remedies for breach? Is that something that you're seeing? I think that goes to the break fee point. Maybe we can skip to the next slide if if no one has anything to add. Uh, just that for partial performance, you just want to be careful that you you can have, the courts have decided that some um, term sheets have been legally binding just by fact of individuals going moving forward with doing actions that um, indicate that. So for example, there was a case Ben and Beyond where uh, the buyer, the seller company had started to start construction even though the term sheet was not binding. Um, but the court had found that it was a binding agreement and they had to move forward. So if you're moving, so you want to be careful in terms of what uh, actions you're taking, which can consider a term, could result in a term sheet being considered by a court as being actually binding. Gotcha. There's a quick question that I think uh, some people might be curious, some more people might be curious about is how does the breakup fee actually work? I don't think we explained that. Um, Louis, maybe you can take that one. Sure. Um, so the break fee can work in a number of ways. Um, if the seller walks away from the deal, that's a that's a what we call the traditional break fee, um, and, and does an alternative transaction within within some period of time after breaking the deal, um, th then some portion of the transaction proceeds that the seller receives have to be uh, given to the buyer, and those typically are are somewhere in a range of four to six percent. Um, I've seen those a lot in life science deals um, where, um, you know, there, there's a, essentially a competitive auction for uh, a molecule that, that has received some sort of a, an FDA approval and, and um, uh, or is in the final stages of obtaining an FDA approval. And, and there's concern that after the FDA approval is received that the seller will walk and do a deal with somebody else. So um, that's, the, that's the traditional break fee. Then there's what's called a reverse break fee where um, which which happens in the definitive document and it, and, it, and it says that if the buyer fails to get financing or the buyer walks away from the deal for whatever reason they have to pay some portion of the proceeds to the seller um, and so essentially um, that says that um, a, a, a transaction shouldn't be just a free option for a buyer and that if they walk from a deal and take a seller off the market for some period of time and, and then don't fail to close that that they um, uh, pay a reverse break fee. And, and typically, if um, it's a straight uh, walk away right, it's going to be a higher number. And if it's a, if it's the failure of a condition to be satisfied, such as failure to obtain financing, then, then, um, you know, the, the buyers will pay a lower reverse break fee somewhere in the 2% range. Um, so that's a uh, forward and reverse break fees in a nutshell, Vitaly. Thanks, sir. Uh, there's another, um, well, quick question. Maybe I can cover that. You know, if uh, the term sheet is mostly non-binding, why is it such a useful tool? I mean, ultimately, it's just to make sure that the two parties are on the same page before you really spend more time, you dive in, and then you find out in the nuance that you're far, far apart. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's probably 80% of, of the effort is to make sure that everybody is kind of agreed in principle to then move on to the details and due diligence. Great point, great point. Shall we hit the next slide? 
Content. Um, so we wanted to to lay out here what are you know kind of the key components of the term sheet. You know who who are who's going to be a party to it. So not only is there a buyer or a seller, but sometimes uh, there's going to be a, a, a stockholders that are signing up, founders, uh, key employees. Um, you know it it, it really uh, runs the gamut. And um, next is is structure. You know how is that going to be? How is this transaction going to be accomplished? And sometimes at the term sheet stage, you don't know, and it's not specified. You just say you're acquiring the business, but you know, an acquisition of a business can happen in a, in a multitude of ways. It, it can happen by an asset purchase uh, where the, the buyer looks at everything that, that the seller owns and just picks and chooses which assets it wants to take and leaves behind not only entity, but perhaps uh, what it views as uh, patent or latent uh, liabilities. Um, the asset acquisition is is uh, is really negative for a seller, not only because uh, they they're going to be left behind with an entity to to, to wind down and and uh, assets that the buyer doesn't want and and liabilities that that are perhaps unquantifiable, but the tax treatment to a seller of an asset deal, uh, particularly a corporate seller, can be fairly punitive as the seller is gonna have to recognize tax uh, not only at the corporate level, but then when it distributes the proceeds out to uh, the owners of the business, the owners are then gonna pay a separate level of tax if it's not an LLC. Um, so the, the the asset structure is is not really ideal from a from a seller perspective, but sometimes it's the best deal that's available. Um, and, and in a bankruptcy situation, it is the, uh, the definitely the deal that that is uh, on the table. Um, a license is is a very creative way of structuring an acquisition where the parties can't agree, um, or you've got to move very quickly, and and um, the seller has uh, intellectual property and and can simply convey that to the the the, the rights to use it to a buyer uh, through a license. Um, then there's a, a a share purchase where the the buyer acquires the entire entity by acquiring every single uh, share or a majority share, and and thereby acquires control. Um, the, the downside of a share purchase uh, for a seller is that it requires uh, everybody to agree and running around and, and getting signatures. And uh, as a result, um, it, it's oftentimes preferable